Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. When Moses descended from Mount Sinai, he clutched two stone tablets inscribed with God's rules for the people of Israel, the original listicle. But it said disappointingly little about investing or asset allocation. Fear not. Today we lay out our 10 commandments for investors everywhere. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, what is asset correlation and why does it matter? Okay, let's get into it. So today we're talking about our 10 commandments of investing. Now, before we get into those, I think it's probably important to say this is not financial advice, is it, Roman? These are just commandments. <laughs> Maybe one for the lawyers to unpick. So, Roman, what is our first commandment? Thou shalt invest for the long term, not trade or gamble. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's something we talk about a lot, and it probably does underpin everything we talk about here, right? And I think the main difference is about your investment horizon. And I think if you are investing for the long term, then you really do think about things differently. But it's got lots of benefits. I mean, for a start, it's really simple. Things get a hell of a lot simpler once you start to think about decade-long returns rather than just trying to beat an index or make a huge amount of money over the short term. It gets simpler and more reliable. Yeah, because you're much more likely to succeed on that particular game. So, you know, you may as well play the game you're going to win. And it probably leads us to the second commandment I see written on the stone tablet. <laughs> it's a Google Doc, it's not a stone tablet. <laughs> oh, it's a Google Doc, sorry. <laughs> Thou shalt not believe the claims of active management. Yeah, so this is important, isn't it? I think it's fair to say we are index investors. Absolutely. And I think the reason why it's easy to kind of fall into the trap of believing what an active manager says is that they're often really intelligent, charismatic people. And there's a kind of cult of celebrity around investing in active funds. And we always hear the same story, you know, in this environment, stock pickers will really help. Whether it's a bull market or whether it's a bear market, it's always the case that they think that we can beat it. You know, we can beat the index, the global index, the local index. But then just time and time again, these very famous investors come unstuck. I think it's the case that there's always someone outperforming, isn't there? But you just can't predict who is going to be at any one time. So in the pandemic, Kathy Wood, like we've said, had this amazing rally, breaking all the records beating the index massively, and then had a mirror image spectacular fall. But wasn't there a kind of curse if you were on the cover of some magazine? It would almost always mean that there'd be some kind of cropper just around the corner. Was it Business Week, maybe? I, I don't know. But it just seems like whenever someone gets described as the next Warren Buffett, you can bet that they're coming a cropper just, you know, months later, usually. That's the sell signal if they're on Business Week. So it happened with Chamath, it happened with Kathy Woods. And, you know, the UK, we've got Terry Smith, great investor. He used to work for the sell side, so he worked for investment banks as an analyst. And then he started his own fund. And it was incredibly successful for a long period of time. But of course, over the last year or so, he's wiped out five years of alpha. You know, it was inevitable that something would happen. And the fees, of course, are not contingent on the returns. So he's still going to scoop off a 1% fee, whether he succeeds or fails. So I think that's the problem, really. If you do believe the claims, then I think it's really important to look at the base statistics, look at the base probabilities, 
And a lot of that comes from the Spiva report, doesn't it? The Spiva report's one of them, but there are many academic papers which suggest a similar thing. I think the most beneficial one, or at least the one which actually suggested that active management was more likely to succeed, was one where they showed the size of the outperformance. And there was a small amount of alpha. It's just that once they start to charge, say, 0.5%, it gets gobbled up very quickly. So the size of the outperformance is quite small, which is why I think something like a symmetric fee, where if they do outperform, yeah, they get to keep some of the gains. But if they don't outperform, they get nothing. And that way, they've got skin in the game. And it's not just an asset gathering exercise, it becomes a kind of really strongly incentivized outperformance exercise. I mean, it would seem a no-brainer to us as investors to structure it like that. Obviously, it doesn't make sense for the managers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what would you prefer, you know, to manage other people's money and always make a fee, whether you succeed or fail? Or if you underperform, you could go out of business. And I think the fact that they don't have symmetric fees shows you immediately that they don't think that they're going to outperform consistently. But just look at the pages of the FT. There's a kind of fund management section, and it's just got page after page of fund managers and funds. And I always think, well, why have we got so many? Are they so successful that they can generate enough fees to keep their businesses afloat? Or is this just a massive con game for many of them that, you know, they've convinced people that they can outperform? You had a nice article in the FT which kind of made that point, didn't you? (laughs) Well, all I said was that you should label the funds correctly. And in particular, when you look at the outperformance, show why it's outperforming, do a return attribution. Yeah. which actually looks at, you know, whether it's currency, whether they're just adopting a style of investing, which has been successful, like Kathy Woods was a growth investor, but you could have bought a cheap growth passive fund, which would have done very well. Yeah, or they're just taking more risk than the underlying index. Yeah, because if you lever up in a bull market, you're going to do well. Or for example, Terry Smith, if you look at a quality fund, ever since he's created Fundsmith Global Equity, it's actually been beaten by this global quality fund consistently, whereas he's been charging much higher fees than that fund. But that style of investing is what's responsible for the outperformance. Or is it stock selection? Is it really their ability to pick stocks which are going to beat the market? I mean, that's presumably what we're paying them for, right? Is their ability to have that magic in a bottle and pick the winning stocks? Yeah, you pay for alpha. And if they're not generating alpha... And as I am temporarily alpha and omega, you know, I can say that. (laughs) (laughs) Good. And the other thing to say about this commandment, don't believe the claims of active management, is that they often pop up, don't they? As talking heads on Bloomberg TV or wherever, or in the press. And they're usually talking their book in some way or other and making some outlandish claim. So I saw that Ray Dalio actually yesterday rode back on his famous advice that cash is trash. He said, oh, no, actually, um, I've changed my mind. Cash is no longer trash. I thought, Ray, why didn't you tell us that before the stocks and bonds fell 25% together? (laughs) It was hilarious. I saw that. And then I saw one of the replies on Twitter said that, oh, well, now it's probably is trash. You know, cash is trash now. So it's probably a good time to buy equity right now. Okay. Third commandment, Roman. Thou shalt diversify. I think, in a way, this is kind of the antidote to the second commandment, isn't it? If you're not going to concentrate into active managers' funds, well, what are you going to do? You're going to diversify, and that manages your risk. Some people think it's diversification because they think, well, if you kind of spread it out amongst multiple investments, then it's not going to do as well, and it's actually going to have a drag. You know, if you're looking at things which have done really well over the past year... 
Yeah, of course, if you've diversified, then some of your investments will underperform. But that's the weird thing about diversification, which is that usually it's the dogs, you know, the ones which usually do really badly, which actually come to the fore during a crisis. And that's particularly true for asset classes like gold or short-term government bonds, which, you know, are quite cash-like, but which have actually done pretty well in terms of preserving capital this year. So what do we mean by diversify? Do we just mean get the broader selection of stocks possible? Or do we mean diversify across all these different asset classes like you're talking about? Well, there are two ways to think about it, I think. One is the kind of normal market movements. So just the day-to-day returns that you see on a non-crisis day. And it's hard to remember what that's like in in 2022. (laughs) But just imagine markets are kind of ticking along, markets are moving up or down. And what you'd look for is things which move in opposite directions. So, for example, if equity goes up, bonds usually go down. And that correlation, that negative correlation, is what creates the diversification. And it is almost like a free lunch in the sense that you can buy assets which are uncorrelated with one another, preserve your return, most of it, and yet reduce your volatility or risk. Then you've got the kind of more elaborate version, which is when markets undergo a stress. So you could go back in time and say, what if we were to replay the global financial crisis? Which set of assets would have preserved my capital? Well, in that case, it was gold and treasuries. And duration actually helped in that case. So if you had 10-year treasuries, 20-year treasuries, it was actually a good thing. Or you could say the pandemic sell-off. What would have preserved my capital then? So these are kind of crisis hedges when you get a big crash in markets. What's weird about these is each one is different. So if it's inflation that's creating the crisis, then bonds don't work at all well. So we've seen bonds crash at the same time as equity this time around. But, you know, if you'd looked at past inflation crises, you could have seen that was the case. And I think there is one other kind of risk which diversifying is trying to manage which is that idiosyncratic risk. So you often see like weird stats around particular stocks. Like someone says, oh, if instead of buying the original iPod, you'd bought Apple stock with that, you'd now have like 500 million or something ridiculous, right? (laughs) But that only looks that way in retrospect, right? Apple might not have become this massive company and you could have lost everything if you just piled into one stock. And there were thousands of Apple-like companies which didn't make it. There was the Zoom, wasn't there? Oh, the Zoom. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. I love seeing pictures of those, you know, just as examples of stuff which didn't make it. Or the other one was the mini disc. You remember that from Sony? I loved a mini disc. It was a beautiful little thing. But unfortunately, it also fell by the wayside. But I think that's the problem, which is a priori, you know, beforehand working out which the unicorns are. And diversification, in a sense, reduces the risk of trying to find those individual stocks which massively outperform. As Jack Bogle said, don't try to find the needle in the haystack, buy the haystack. You'll still make plenty of return. Yeah, you preserve your return. You won't get all of it, but you'll still do pretty well. And so now we reach the fourth commandment. Remember the fees and keep them tiny. Solid advice, I think, and maybe the most important one to follow, because fees are always there. And I think one of the things that members now, you know, pension craft members always say is, oh, the fee's a bit high. You know, if they're talking about a fund that they own, they kind of almost admit, you know, oh, I'm sorry, but... You know, <laughs> I'm sorry I'm playing 0.8% for this thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, some people are simply not aware that they have to pay fees. And I remember there was a study done by the UK regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority. They actually asked people, how much do you pay in fees for your pension, for your funds? And a lot of people say nothing. 
you know, they think they're not being charged at all. But if you just look into the city, you know, just see a kind of panorama of the city in London or the financial district in New York. And where do you think the money comes from to pay for that glass and marble? Yeah, it's you. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> I mean, I'd rather see people working in porter cabins, you know, if they work in the finance industry. Would you give your money to Cathy Wood, though, if she was just sat in a little porter cabin? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if she did a good job, obviously. It's weird, though, isn't it? Like, you should be more willing to give your money to someone who's just sat in a little tent in the woods managing your money <laughs> rather than in a glass office, but it doesn't work like that. Well, of course, performance matters, but so does the fee structure. So if it was Kathy Woods in a porter gabin with symmetric fees, where, you know, if she didn't outperform, she wouldn't get the fee, I suspect this year she would be in a porter gabin. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this brilliant tweet which was talking about the biggest cash incinerator funds. Now, Cathy was one of them, but it was also lots of passive funds, a lot of bond funds this year, which have incinerated huge amounts of cash. And, you know, one of them was one of the ones I bought, which is KWeb. <laughs> it's incinerated some of my cash. I guess the other thing to remember is that fees come in many flavours. So the one we're probably all familiar with is the expense ratio, isn't it? And that's what's posted. You know, it has to be legally displayed for any fund. And if you look at the fact sheet or at least the key investor information document, it will show that expense ratio. And it's some percentage of the amount you invest. So what would you think is expensive? So I'd say 0.2%. Anything more than 0.2% is expensive. But now you can buy some funds which have zero fee because the asset manager can lend out the assets and generate a lending fee. Now, that only works for huge funds. So a lot of American funds which track the S&P are now zero fee funds. And I think that's probably the way we're moving in terms of fees, almost zero for very liquid, large funds. But the other fees that you have to worry about are slightly more insidious. The thing about expense ratio for a fund is it's never visible. They just subtract a tiny bit of the return of your investment on a daily basis. So you never actually physically pay any cash. Whereas if you have something like a platform fee, so if you invest via a broker, the broker will probably charge you just to hold the stuff with them and just to keep the lights on and to pay their staff and to generate a profit for their shareholders. So that's the platform fee. And they might also charge a commission on when you're buying and selling securities. If you're buying ETFs or individual stocks, you'll be paying a bid offer spread, which is the difference between the buy and the sell price. So the more you trade, the more you're paying. So that you can control with your behaviour. If you trade infrequently, then you're essentially taking money away from the brokers. They won't like it, but of course, that's good for us. And then, of course, you've got the exchange fee. So if you convert into a different currency, the broker can quietly overcharge you on the currency conversion. So that's always a worry. And the other thing, it's not really a fee, but it's kind of in the same ballpark, is taxes. Like, really, it's so important to make use of your tax advantage accounts when you're investing. In the UK, that'd be an ISA or a SIP, self-invested pension plan. Because, you know, if you're paying dividend tax and capital gains tax, that can take a massive chunk out of your return. Whereas in these vehicles, you don't pay those taxes. And in many countries, if you make a loss, if you have a crystallised loss on your investments, you can actually take that capital loss and write it off against your taxes. You can in the UK, you can do tax loss harvesting in the US as well. And if you do that, then, you know, it can make a massive difference over the long term. Okay, so that's fees. We're almost at the halfway point. What is commandment number five? Honour thy base rate and thy valuation. Okay, 
This is right up your street. This must be your favourite commandment, Roman. <laughs> I do love base rates. But I think all it really means is if you're trying to predict anything, and this is true not just of investment, but anything in life, look at the base rates. Look at what is true historically without conditioning on anything. So let's say we're trying to work out whether you're going to beat the market. Look at statistics on other people. Don't assume you're Warren Buffett. Just see what's the average. And don't try and say, well, you know, I'm more intelligent than other people or... You're not more intelligent than Warren Buffett. Nobody's more intelligent than Warren Buffett. But that's why I think people need to pay attention to their probability of success or what the kind of probability is. And these super forecasters, these people who actually are very good at forecasting, that's the first thing they always look at. So it's not just about your ability to outperform, is it? It's the base rate return for different asset classes and managing your own expectations of return going forward. Yeah, just knowing what the average return is for equity versus bonds. You're going to generate about 4% more on equity in a typical year than you would on bonds. And that's an incredibly important number because it immediately tells you that if you're investing for a long period of time, you put more money into equity. And that's why I think it's really important to kind of strip away all the nonsense that you hear about investing with these base rates. But one of the difficulties is that if you have a new asset class like cryptocurrency, you don't have much history. So you can't really assess the base rates particularly well. And I think that's why it's led many people to overestimate what returns they'll have in future for things like Ethereum or Bitcoin. And the other half of this commandment is about valuation and honoring valuation. And that's kind of, in my mind, a warning signal when something gets too far away from its base rate. And now we are conditioning on some things that we know, by which I mean, look at the probability of a certain level of return when you've got very expensive equity. And what's really interesting is that if you look over a five-year horizon, one of the very strong predictors of what the return will be over a five or 10-year horizon is the current valuation level whether it's the price-to-earnings multiple, the trailing one-year price-to-earnings multiple, or the trailing 10-year, which is the CAPE measure. Those are very strongly affecting what the return will be over the next 10 years. So here we are conditioning on what we know, and that's a really important thing to know. That's why I'm always rabbiting on about the CAPE measure, the forward price-to-earnings multiple, because that really does tell you good entry points for the equity market. Is the broader version of this commandment just be evidence-based in your investing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this whole evidence-based investing approach is exactly the right one. Or you could describe evidence-based investing as saying, look at base rates, look at historical relationships, and don't necessarily believe what you're told by marketing campaigns, however slick they are. Okay, now it's time to flip the vinyl and onto the (laughs) B-side. Commandment number six. Thou shalt not shill. More of an ethical and uh, psychological one, this one. And particularly for influencers, which apparently I am now. (laughs) Yeah, but you're not shilling anything. You're not Kim Kardashian. (laughs) But she certainly got fined, didn't she? She got uh, a fairly big fine. Well, $1.26 million would be massive for you and I, but for Kim Kardashian, I don't think it's too much (laughs) of a problem. What was it for? I think it was to do with actually not saying that she was being paid by the people who run the cryptocurrency. Was that the case? Yeah, she was advertising something called Ethereum Max on her Instagram page. And the SEC said that that was a little like a pump and dump if she uh, didn't uh, reveal that she was being paid to do it. And she's now agreed not to promote crypto assets for three years. But it's kind of a slap on the wrist, really, isn't it? 
I mean, I think it's important to say that she's neither admitted to nor denied the regulator's findings. But it does demonstrate the risk behind this commandment, which is that we're in this environment now where pump and dump schemes are pretty tempting, right? Because you can make money (laughs) doing them. But it's so subtle as well. I mean, if they just say something like, hey, you guys, have you heard about this thing? You just think, well, oh, okay, I haven't heard of that. Now I'll look into it because I respect that person. And it doesn't feel like marketing. So I think being aware of that kind of influence on your behaviour is also important. If you're clicking buy on something, just look at the chain of events which led up to it. You know, was it because you went and researched something or was it because you were kind of nudged into it? I think the other thing to say is if your returns on an asset can be strongly influenced by your ability to get out there and promote it, it's probably, you know, (laughs) underlying that is not a great asset, right? It should make returns on a rational basis on its own. Yeah, I mean, it should tell its own story. And that brings us back to commandment number five, which is to look at the base rate. And here we go. Commandment number seven, a real classic. Thou shalt not time the market. I mean, when I first started getting into investing like a decade or so ago, this was the one which really made all the difference to me when I realized that you couldn't dance in and out and outperform. Because I, before that, I thought investing must be so complicated. You've got to look at all these different pieces of information, understand what's going on in the world economy. And how do you know whether to invest or not? But once you realize that no one can really time the market and you've just got to stay invested for the long term, it makes everything so much easier. Now, for most people, they're drip feeders. You know, you earn money, you save money, you invest money. And so you don't really have control over the timing. Maybe you'd hold back money, but that's generally a bad idea. But for people who've just inherited a large sum of money or sold a company, that's a very different story. And a lot of the conversations I have during power hours is with people who are in that situation. Because there you've got this huge sum of money. You're tempted to invest it straight away. And you're thinking, well, what if markets crash? So they're terrified of doing that. So for them, you know, it does feel like timing the market's critically important. But generally, those people are in a very strong position because they don't have to act quickly. They do have time on their side. And it's usually money they don't need anyway. So they can be quite tactical when it comes to investment. Do you not think it's true that if you're super scared of market crashes, which are going to come along, we can't stop them, they're going to happen every so often. Really, your problem is not trying to time the market. It's that you've probably taken too much risk in your allocation, right? Rather than trying to dance in and out, you should have a portfolio where you're comfortable with the level of drawdown that can be expected looking at base rates. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And you only discover that after a crash happens, usually. So usually you go through one crisis, you lose money, and you come out of it wiser and go into the next crisis, hopefully, with that knowledge forearming you about how to allocate in a more diversified way. But that's certainly not true of everybody. You know, they don't learn from previous experiences. They kind of lever up when markets are overheating and they tend to sell when markets crash, which is the worst thing you can do. I see a lot of that at the moment. So stocks this year are down, I don't know, 20% plus. And I'm seeing so many people say, well, should I sell now? Is it just going to get worse? Or should I pause my dollar cost averaging into the market? It's like, well, the market is a lot lower than it was, right? <laughs> Surely now is the time to do, to do more. I don't know. If you like equity at 4,000 S&P, you'll like it a lot more at 3,000. People don't think like that, though, do they? <laughs> no, because they think it'll carry on falling. And of course, that's a natural thing. You're hearing negative news and you're scared. Of course you are. And I think that's why it's difficult to, to kind of do the right thing, which is to run in the opposite direction of everyone else. The thing is, it might continue falling. But if, commandment number one, if we're a long-term investor, do we really care? 
And number five, you know, valuation matters. And if you are buying at a valuation which is fair or even cheap, then great, because yeah, it might get cheaper, but it always recovers. And that's assuming that you buy something which does recover, not a single stock. Yeah, that's commandment number three. Diversify. Yeah. So you don't put all your money into Tesla options, call options, because that could expire completely worthless. You have to diversify and also buy things which do recover. Like an index, a global index will always recover. A national index will always recover eventually. Yeah. And if the global index doesn't recover, we're probably sat in a steaming nuclear bunker somewhere. Yeah. And it's never happened in the past and it's unlikely to happen in the future. So what's the next commandment then? Number eight. Thou shalt not chase return. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, I think the problem with many investors is that they simply pile into whatever is rising at a particular point in time. For example, I mean, I've done this in the past myself, which is when cryptocurrency was going up, everyone gets kind of pulled into it. Now, I actually created a momentum strategy. So I actually sold without a significant loss. And in fact, that's been my best investment this year which is it actually got left in dollars. So, you know, by pound, by the pound devaluation, <laughs> you know, I actually killed it with crypto, but only because I had dollars. So. I love that you did chase return, but you did it in such a sort of nerdy way. <laughs> <laughs> and accidentally made money, you know, that's the story of my life. That's the problem, though, which is if you have an actively managed fund, you know, they do call it the next Warren Buffett, managing it, everyone piles into the fund just in time for the thing to blow up. And a lot of money comes into the game late. So for example, these pump and dump schemes, by the time you hear about it, it's probably already near to the kind of dump stage. But also as a way of choosing which investments to go for, increasing return is generally difficult to manage from a cognitive point of view. Now, if you've got a quant fund, which does momentum, they actually perform pretty well because they don't have any kind of tendency to stay when things have reversed, which humans do. Because you think, well, look, it's been so successful for me in the past. It would be crazy to sell it now. It's just a temporary blip. Whereas a quant strategy would simply say, no, dump it. The trouble is, if we're running a quant strategy from our bedroom, we have the ability to turn the machine off. <laughs> we can stop and start it. Yeah, and, and override it. Yeah, that's the danger. So, for example, at the moment, everyone's talking about managed futures funds because they do very well when markets are trending up or down. And they did very well this year because markets have been trending down, so they've gone short. But normally, they underperform. That's why I think it's important if you are going to use a momentum strategy, which is just chasing return, make sure that it's something which is in some way automated and the decisions are taken out of your hands. Or just be absolutely sure you've got iron discipline. Yeah, I've never really psychologically been one to chase return, which is lucky, right? I just sort of thought, I'll tie myself to the great ship of global equity and hopefully ride the waves. Like, I'll just take what the return is. I'm not going to try and beat the return. And that'll probably work. But just chasing, you know, the latest fad is not going to work for most people because you'll probably get in too late, you'll overpay and underperform long term. And your fees will be higher, the trading fees, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, thematic funds are an example of this, where they find some kind of marketing theme, people pile into it, they overpay, and then they underperform. And you mentioned a lot of quite complicated things there, like managed futures and momentum strategies, which kind of leads us nicely into commandment number nine. Thou shalt not invest in things thou dost not understand. 
a critical one, really. And I think this is where a lot of people go wrong when they first get into investing. Everything looks shiny and tempting and you only understand it on a superficial level. Because there's so many products out there offered by Wall Street and the city, you can't really get into the nuts and bolts of everything. And if you're intellectually curious, then every single stock report is like a rabbit hole. And you could just be drawn into everyone. And every time I read a company report, I always think, oh, this is great. This is really interesting. You know, why has their cash flow increased so much over the last year? And then you dig further and further. And it's just another company which sells sprockets. You know, I mean, it's just very easy to get caught up in a narrative. And there's just infinite fractal complexity in investment, such that if you lose track of the broad picture, you could just get bogged down in the detail. And so even if you do understand stuff, I think it sometimes hurts you because you kind of get sucked in and lose sight of your broader investment goals. I also think that, yeah, you might understand how a kind of complex product works in normal times. But then when the bad times come, when the crisis comes, maybe the asset moves in a way you didn't expect or don't understand why. So I saw a lot of people investing in inflation-linked government bonds thinking, oh, this will protect me from high inflation if we get it. And now we've got high inflation and government bond funds, including inflation-linked bond funds, are selling off hugely this year. And people are like, what? I thought I was protected. <laughs> I just try and warn people about that one. But that's right. You kind of think you understand something and then the way you find out you don't is by losing money. So all I'd say is try to simplify things at first, because if you just understand the real basics about equity returns long term, bond returns long term and risk, just understand the real basics and start off very, very simple. It'll protect you from the allure of complexity. I think the other thing is with stocks, for example, people look at individual stocks and look for like one magic number, which says if it's a good stock or not. And often it's, you know, the P.E. ratio, for example. And they'll say, oh, this company has a P.E. ratio of like three. That's super low. Shall I just buy this stock? Is it a good stock? And you're like, well, look into the report. And the reason it's super low is that analysts are forecasting its revenue to crash next year, for example. Or is going bankrupt, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's right. I think all of the kind of usual problems of entering a new field and learning about it apply to investment. And the worst one, I think, is overconfidence. Once you get into a particular thing and you've got a little bit of superficial knowledge and you assume that's going to carry you through. And for most people, that's the point at which they can really hurt themselves. Or you assume that you've had huge returns because you're an investing genius and you don't understand that it's just because markets were going up. So you're saying they're not geniuses, it was just the bull market. Well, they might have been geniuses, but I think for many people, that wasn't the case. <laughs> Good. And here we go. We've reached the 10th of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's portfolio, nor his ox, nor his assets. <laughs> it's a good one. And I think it's important, isn't it? Is that kind of horses for courses. People might be investing in a certain portfolio because of their own goals, because of their own situation. And you can't just look at someone and go, oh, they're smart. They know what they're doing. I'll just copy what they're doing. I mean, it's like saying, look, somebody else has got a race car or a kind of amazing sports car. So that's what I'm going to buy. And if you're just doing, you know, runs to the local shops, you're just going to look like a complete idiot. I see a lot of those around here in Islington. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Chelsea tractors everywhere. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, if you're buying something which is very high risk or it's got a lot of leverage or perhaps it's private equity or it requires a lot of initial investment, then that might not be appropriate for you. You might need something which is lower risk. 
Or it might be the opposite of that. Maybe you've got a friend who's got very low-risk assets and they talk about how much they've got in terms of fixed income. But for you, it might be much more appropriate to have a lot more risk because you don't need the money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I noticed think... that whenever you talk about your portfolio, you always say to people, don't copy what I do. Like You literally say it as simply as that. Yeah, always, because there's just a natural tendency. If I'm the guy who's managing a community, then there's just a natural tendency to copy what I do. But that would be a huge mistake. And what I absolutely love is when I get pushback from people saying, you know, what you say is wrong. It's not appropriate for me and I don't agree with you. The difference between investment education and shilling is exactly that. You know, I'd like to learn from the community as well as them learning from me, but it's not via copying. Yeah. Now you've got a good community now. How many people is it? So it's about 800 people, I think, now. Think about it, though, Roman. Jesus only had 12 disciples. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be in trouble with my wife now. She's a Christian. (laughs) And one way we've seen this kind of copying phenomenon really come to the fore is in copy trading, which is the ability on a platform. So I know eToro offers it where you can find some sort of prominent investor and click just buy me everything they're buying. Trade me as they're trading. There's another platform that does this, which is Trading212, which has something called a pie where it's a published portfolio where it automatically rebalances and you can copy other people's pies. The one that was really popular was the one that was tracking Cathy Wood's Ark K Fund. Now, I assume that's not so popular now, but I think that's the problem, which is that the way people find these is they sort them by return and they just say, look, I'll just copy the one which is successful or most successful right now. And if it's got blisteringly high returns, they never question the risk or how they achieve those returns. They simply pile into it. It is the phenomenon of giving a man a fish rather than teaching him to fish. And you've got to find your own voice. You've got to find your own portfolio that you're comfortable with. And it can take many iterations. You know, you could have to go through several crises before you end up with a portfolio that you're really happy with, which you can live with. I think one of the strengths of pension craft is that it's not a cult. It's very much a combined learning experience and we're all learning together. So if you want to become part of that community, then why not take a look at our website, pensioncraft.com, to learn more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, what is asset correlation and why does it matter? Now, sometimes people come to me with a portfolio, which is really complicated, and they say to me, could you do your Scooby-Doo tree? Now, if you're not familiar with it, it's a very simple thing. It's just a tree where the leaves are the individual assets you own, and the twigs, where two assets are very close together, show that those assets are highly correlated. In other words, they move up and down in price together. So secretly, behind the scenes, they have similar drivers. Sometimes it's obvious, you know, so for example, if it's Canadian stocks and US stocks, well, clearly they'll be highly correlated. But sometimes you get surprises. For example, it could be a global equity fund and not described as such. So two will be highly correlated. So the idea is you can look at this tree and see if you've accidentally concentrated your portfolio. Yeah, exactly. And that can often be subtle. So that's why it's useful to look at the correlations. Or if you want to prune the tree, then you just keep the big branches. So what you do is you cut the tree at a certain point and you say, I'm just going to keep three branches. And then you just choose the fund which you like best from each of the branches. So if it's you start off with 100 funds, it's really difficult to group them and prune them. But what this does is it lets you do that very easily. 
and just makes it a more structured way of simplifying things. So how do you actually build that tree? How do you measure correlation? What goes into it? It's a kind of statistical measure, which is based on whether things surprise on the upside and downside at the same time. So if you think about volatility, that's a measure of surprise. So if you hear that the return on the S&P is 2% on a given day, is that surprisingly big? Well, in order to know that, you need to know the volatility of the S&P, which is roughly 2% on a daily basis. So 2% up or down is just nothing at all. It doesn't mean anything. But if you have a two standard deviation move, that's a big deal. So 4% up or down is a big deal. So that's a measure of surprise. That's volatility. Now imagine where you made a table where every day you look at whether each stock or asset surprises on the upside or downside. And then you just kind of put a score in the table if they go up and down together. So if you get a lot of ticks in the boxes where they both go up together or down together, that's high correlation. If you get roughly the same number of ticks in the four boxes, the up and down boxes and both combinations, then that means that there's very little correlation. So really, it's a kind of measure of simultaneous surprise on the upside or downside. And if assets do surprise on the upside and downside simultaneously, that tells you they're highly correlated. And what's the disadvantage then of having a highly correlated portfolio? Presumably we're in that portfolio because we think we know that that's going to outperform. Yeah, the problem is that you just end up buying more of the same stuff, even though it's labelled differently. So you're not diversifying when maybe you think you are. And as we've discussed earlier, diversification is so important. Yeah, so let's imagine you buy 10 tech stocks from a given country. Well, in that case, effectively, you're buying the same risk. If something affects that industry in that country, all of them will fall together. Yeah, if there's new regulation or tax law or trade embargoes, then yeah, they're all exposed to the same risks. And that's something which you'll be able to detect with this. Now, the problem with correlation is, let's say you've got 20 assets. What you end up with is a huge number of correlations. And the number of correlations goes as the square of the number of things you look at. So that's why the tree is really useful, because it's a kind of low dimensional, simple way of visualising something which is very high dimensional. And how do I build this tree, Romy? It sounds so important. <laughs> well, uh, it's not easy. I mean, I use R for it. And, you know, we're thinking of creating this as a tool for our members. You need to build it for us. At the moment. So book your power hours with Roman, <laughs> <laughs> And he'll show you your tree is really just a horrible little misgrown shrub. But wait, that's commandment six. Thou shalt not shill. But is this tree static then? Do the correlations just stay the same forever? No, they certainly don't. For example, this year, bonds and equity have essentially gone to a correlation which is very high. So they didn't diversify at all. So sometimes the structure of markets does change. But again, if you're looking over the long term, you do have fairly stable correlations. It's just important to understand that it's not a static thing. I guess one of the limitations then of taking this approach to correlation where we're just so focused on it is that maybe it can give you a false sense of security and you think, oh, I'm so well diversified, nothing can touch me, right? I'll survive any market conditions. And you probably will, right, if you're well diversified, but it doesn't mean there won't be drawdowns. And that's something you just have to get used to. You know, you can do your best to reduce risk, but it's never going to go to zero. You'll always be in a situation where market conditions throw something at you that you just can't deal with. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production. 
co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakisa and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice. 